the scripture goes on in Luke after he declares to the the criminal next to him, truly I say to you today you'll be with me in paradise. The scripture reads, it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. As we celebrate the service of Good Friday today, we remember the sacrifice of Christ. And I just want to read a... One other verse out of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And it's in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Because here, Paul makes that statement that we've all heard, we've all quoted, we've all said probably many times. But he says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14... Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I want to talk about glorying in the cross of Christ. You know, in our world today, in religion, there's basically two approaches to salvation. There's only two. There's only two that exist. There's many different religions out there, I know. But there's only two forms of religion that man has ever known. There is the religion that contains grace, faith, and the spirit, known as Christianity. And there's the religion of law, works, flesh, religion, which basically identifies all the rest. God's way is a way of grace. Working through faith in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're taught in the scriptures. And he sustains us in that faith through the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit, which he gives to us, gives to all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as a deposit, as a guarantee of our salvation one day. All the other ways, no matter what they are, beloved, no, no matter what, no matter how different they are from each other, they're all an attempt at salvation by the flesh, by works, by the law. Think of it as the... If you walked into a store that sold religions... And the the shelves were just lined with all kinds of different religions. Hundreds of 
attractive packages, sparkling, appealing to the eye. All kinds of shapes, sizes, labels, claims, prices. But there's nothing inside the box. Just sawdust. Sawdust of works righteousness. Which is tasteless. It's hopeless. And standing alone over in the corner in an unattractive box that would be repulsive to anyone is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that alone contains the real food. God's way is a way of divine accomplishment. It's something that divine that happens to us when we're saved. All the other ways rely on human achievement. Those who follow the religion of divine accomplishment say, you know what, I cannot accomplish anything in my own power, in my own goodness, in my own righteousness. And so what do I have to do? I have to throw myself upon the mercy of God. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm trusting in your sufficient sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on my behalf. Those who follow the way of human achievement, on the other hand, are saying, oh, you know what, I've done this, I've done that. It's my merit, it's my power. I can make myself acceptable to God somehow. And I'm going to try really hard to turn this ship around. Because I want to be acceptable. I want to go to heaven. I want to be worthy of that place. And so I have to do it on my own. That's human achievement. Those are the two. Divine accomplishment, human achievement. The religion of divine accomplishment relies on the gospel of Jesus Christ, who by God's sovereign grace provided for our redemption through the sacrifice of him on the cross. So why do we glory in the cross? Why does Paul say we need to glory in the cross? Well, taken in its context, if you understand what's going on in the book of Galatians, and we're not going to go into detail because we don't have time, but the Judaizers of Paul's time were Jews who claimed to follow Christ. And they wanted to bring all their trappings of Judaism over into Christianity. And so they were infiltrating the Galatian church. And they were saying, well, you know, we know we have to trust in Jesus, but you also have to do this and you have to follow the law and you have to do all this legalistic stuff. And they claimed to believe in Jesus they claimed that he was the way, but they also said, well, if you're going to be a true Christian, you better be circumcised and you need to keep the law and you need to make their belief evident by outward practices, outward religious practices. And not just any religious practices, the religious practices that we deem you have to keep. And so they were really a group of individuals who bragged about the religious accomplishments they were filled with pride. They were filled with self-glory. They were teaching grace and law. That's what they were doing. And the Apostle Paul, in that letter to the Galatian church, rebukes these teachers. 
He rebukes their gospel as a man-made gospel, which is really no gospel at all, he says. He says that early on in the letter. He kind of takes the gloves off right away. In verses 6 and 7, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So they were being approached by these false teachers and they were giving into it and they were beginning to follow this human achievement gospel. God's way, remember, is divine achievement. Well, what does that have to do with glorying or boasting in the cross? In, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, let me just read this for you. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. For the Jews demanded signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. And this is Paul. But we preach what? Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. I read that because it's not natural to glory in the cross. It's not something to look at something that was used as an instrument of death and say, wow. Let's celebrate this. And yet Paul says here, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. That word boast or glory has that kind of a thing. It, it carries with it an aspect of pride, but not in a, a bad way. Not in a sinful way. It speaks more of glorying in something. Paul gloried and rejoiced. Not in what he could do or what he did but only in the cross of Christ. And trust me, he did a lot. He talks about that in the letter to the Philippians, all that he's done. And he counts it all as rubbish, he said. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul said that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. See, by Christ's work on the cross, the reason we glory in the cross is because we're saved by that work. In Ephesians 2, 16, it says that through the cross, we are reconciled to God. We are brought back to a proper relationship with God. Colossians 1, 20 says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. In other words, there was a dividing point between God's creation and himself. There was a problem. There was a division. It needed to be fixed. And so he says, if you want to be reconciled back to the proper relationship with me, you need to come through the cross. Paul says, we don't boast, we don't glory in our outward acts of our own doing. Have you ever done that? Sure you have, you're human. We all do, right? Don't sit there and stare at me like you've never done it. We've all done it. And Paul says, don't do it. It's not good to do that. And the cross is about the last thing a natural man would ever have selected as a reason for boasting. 
We read that it's a stumbling block to the Jews. The Greeks look at it, the other half of, of human humanity say, well, that's just foolishness. So you have one group of people stumbling over it, the other group are just looking at it as foolishness. And it's only till God divinely touches their hearts that for the first time they realize that, wow, we need the glory in the cross. The cross really exposes man's desperate state. It exposes our utter bankruptcy, you might say, that made such suffering necessary. And trust me, Christ did suffer. He suffered like no other human suffered on that cross. But there was also a spiritual nature to his suffering, which we will never understand. That while Christ hung on that cross, the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, on him was laid all the sins of all the people who would ever trust in Christ for their salvation. And he carried that weight. And he bore that sin for you, for me. The cross really reveals the folly of all human pride. It teaches man to say, I never knew myself as a sinner nor recognized Christ as my Savior. One song says, Until upon the cross I saw my God who died to meet the law, that I had broken, then I saw my sin, and then my Savior. See, we'll never be able to understand the cross. We'll never be able to understand the wonder of God's glorious love unless we also see our own unworthiness. And as the hymn says, we pour out contempt on all of our pride. See, by God's marvelous grace, Paul had come to view the cross, first of all, as a mirror. As a mirror. Not of his own, not only of his own unworthiness. When you look at the cross, you should see your unworthiness. Because it's upon that cross all your sins were paid for. But also, you can see the excellencies of God in the cross. What do I mean by that? Well, excellencies such as God's righteousness. Excellencies such as God's power and wisdom, his love, his mercy, his grace. All those things are wrapped up in the cross of Christ. That's why we celebrate the cross. That's why we glorify glory in the cross. But it's not just a mirror. It's also the means of redemption. The means of redemption. When we think of our redemption, we think of words like justification, words like sanctification, words like ultimately glorification. I was listening, and my wife was actually listening by a message from MacArthur this past week, and I caught a part of it, and I thought, that's pretty good, I'm going to put that in there. And he says this, he included knowledge here, he says, the knowledge of Christ, theologians call that identification. But we also gain the righteousness of Christ. Theologians call that justification. Not only that, but we gain the power of Christ. Theologians call that sanctification. And then he even goes on and he says, and we gain the suffering of Christ. Theologians call that participation. And then finally we gain the glory of Christ. And we call that glorification. See, that's something 
that is the means of our redemption. All those things save us. They all take place. And it's through the cross that they do. Well, not only is the cross the mirror and the means of our redemption, but it's also a magnet. And what I mean by that, it basically aligns every tribe and nation under one roof. We need to be drawn to the cross, to Christ crucified. And when we are, the Bible calls us one body in Christ. There's no more Jew and Gentile. We're one in Christ. There's no more male and female. We're one in the body of Christ. When's the last time you thanked the Lord for the body of Christ? When's the last time you thanked the Lord for drawing you to Christ as the Savior, to drawing you into the body of Christ. We take it for granted so many times. I often think of people in foreign countries who don't have the privilege of having a nation that was at least built upon Christian principles. And they're entrapped to some foreign religion and yet they end up becoming a believer. And they don't have a body. They have nobody. As a matter of fact, they probably can't even let their family know what they believe. Or they'd be ostracized. And most of them are. Or giving up their life. Being martyred. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to live your faith without a local church? Without a local body that you could call and, and come together with and pray together with? The cross is the the magnet that not only draws us to Christ, but puts us in that that body of Christ. And then lastly, it's the model. It's a model. When we look at the cross, we should be be, be willing to imitate what Christ did there for us. I mean, we can't die on a cross. I don't mean that. But I think the scripture is full of verses that tell us that we should have that same self sacrificing loving attitude that Christ had when he hung on the cross. And those acts of love that he showed us by going to the cross should be reflected in our hearts and our lives as God's children. I mean, that's why Paul glories in the, church, in, in the cross. Well, how do we do that? How do we glory only in the cross? Well, first of all, By surrendering ourselves to Christ crucified. By surrendering to Christ as your Lord and Savior. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We surrender ourselves to that. That's what the Christian life is. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you're not a Christian. I don't care how often you come to church or how often you pray or how often you read your Bible. You're not. Part of following Christ is yielding your life to him. Counting him as your master, as your Lord and Savior. That means you have to set your agenda aside. And you trust in what his agenda is. 
But it's also by praying that the power of the crucified and risen Savior may be more and more assert itself in our own lives. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 16. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider... That I have made it on my own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. That was in Philippians chapter 3. So by praying that the power of Christ may be more and more in our lives, but also by proclaiming the crucified and risen Lord. Paul points this out over and over again. Notice he refers to Christ here as our Lord Jesus Christ. The love of Christ constraining him to do so. He understands what it means to go and to preach the gospel. He needs to do that. He laid his life on the line for it. And so should we. We don't need to be worried about people getting upset or turning away from us. We're proclaiming a powerful message through the power of of Christ. The fact that he was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead. Then the fourth thing there by Courageously defending, not only proclaiming, but defending the gospel. We need to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to stand up for it. We don't just lay down and say, well, they're not going to understand anyway, so I'll just let them mock it or whatever. That's not what we do as believers. We offer an apologetic. And hopefully it's our own life change, our own life. They can look at us and say, what is different about you? And you can proclaim, hey, this is not... Human achievement, this is divine accomplishment. This is something that that God has done in me, through me. And the last thing here before our communion time, what effect glorying in the cross has when you stop and you glory in the cross. Notice the end of that verse. By the cross, says Paul, the world has been crucified to me. Notice there, he doesn't say that I crucified the world. But the world has been crucified to me. In other words, he's bearing testimony to the fact that the Holy Spirit, by means of the pure doctrine of the cross, does a mighty work in his heart, in his soul. The world there, all the earthly pleasures, the treasures, everything that those folks value, to Paul it became dead. Calvin said this, this exactly agrees with 
the language which Paul employs on another occasion and then refers to Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, which we just read. Paul adds there, and I have been crucified to the world. It's not only the fact that the world has been crucified to me, but I have been crucified to the world. Logic would seem to demand that when you think about those two statements. Paul has become dead to the world. It's become an object of contempt. One writer says this, Paul, Paul's ideals and outlook have now become so spiritual and unworldly that the world can ignore him, just as if he'd ceased to be. <laughs> Didn't mean anything anymore. Sometimes I think of our lives and how we get so caught up in this world and we're hanging on every little news report and we fail to remind ourselves that we need to be glorying in the cross and in the cross alone. 